On this episode, I interviewed Alex Calder, who is the head of sports science with the Houston Dynamo and MLS. We first started talking about sports science, as Alex has strength conditioning as well as sports science experience. We talked about how he defines sports science. We then talked about how he best utilizes sports science and tries to apply it in a practical way in the strength conditioning and rehab settings. So those were kind of the intro topics we talked about, but then I guess the main bulk of the podcast was focused on on hamstrings. So we talked all things from training hamstrings to rehab ham, to rehabbing hamstrings. Um, so the main topics we talked about were different metrics Alex looks at to determine readiness, robustness, etc. We talked about ways he looks to improve these metrics, whether it be volume, intensity, how he likes to train, which movements, hip dominant versus knee dominant, um, other things he likes to focus on. We talked about ways he likes to monitor hamstring health and robustness across the season. We talked about any risk reduction programs and principles he likes to use. And then, again, we dive into more of our end-stage rehab drills, high-speed running, et cetera there. So uh, all-encompassing on on hamstring health. Uh, So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Noic Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood. And today I have on Alex Calder, who is a head of sports science at Houston Dynamo. So thank you very much for taking the time to be on, Alex. I uh, first just want to introduce yourself, give us a little background, how you got where you are now, uh, which you currently do, and then we can go from there. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, you've had some uh, big practitioners on recently, so I've got big shoes to fill. But uh, yeah, honor to be here, man. So... Uh, as myself, yeah, currently the, the head of sports science uh, with Houston Dynamo. Uh, I'm in my fourth season here at the club and my, my seventh season in the MLS. Um, previously to, to here, I was with Orlando City in, in similar capacity. Uh, and then I've held other positions with the University of Louisville, uh, Purdue University and, and a couple other places here and there. And then uh, obviously uh, from Melbourne, Australia, so I... I kind of started my uh, strength and conditioning career or sports science career, whatever you'd like to call it at this point, uh, started it back there at home. So uh, been a bit of a journey, but but here I am now. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, nice. So uh, I feel like I get all the interview all the Australians and now I'm interviewing Australians in America. So I'll have to, I'll have to try to get some uh, uh, diversity to this podcast coming up. Um, but no, thanks thanks for taking the time to be on. Uh, I guess I guess first thing we'll talk about here, because as you mentioned, you, you do strength conditioning as well as sports science. Um, so I guess kind of how you integrate those or how you kind of classify them as separately and then and use them together to get the best outcome. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough question, mate. So I, to give you, a, a, I guess, a bit of background is is I kind of started uh, my journey as a strength and conditioning coach and I'd probably consider myself uh, my main strength in the SNC world. Um, however, my kind of philosophy as a practitioner is that those complement each other and I feel like you, you're better in, in one uh, element if you're, you know, somewhat strong in the other. Um so for me, it kind of started as, as, a, as an S&C coach and then trying to prescribe accurate uh, programming and, and then 
starting to monitoring, monitoring, you know, how much load uh, I'm prescribing for players and everything at the time, uh, kind of led me into in, into the realm of uh, tracking and monitoring and, and being a bit more diligent about the process, um, which is now termed sports science, I suppose. Um, yeah, so for me, uh, now in my current day-to-day stuff, uh, I, I, I'm kind of overseeing the monitoring side of things and that involves everything from wellness questionnaires, GPS, heart rate, wearables and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that the um, kind of special thing about blending the two is it's instead of being in one element, we're just a sports scientist reporting data that you're collected, interpreting and and analysing. Um, as a practitioner, SNC practitioner, you kind of have a bit more ability to manipulate and, and create uh positive change uh what i mean by that is if we're uh you know if we're looking at players and players have a run enough or whatever we can prescribe conditioning and and be really in tune with what we're prescribing as well um instead of just reporting what we're seeing we're able to go that kind of one step further so for me those go hand in hand um i know every club and organization and, and and even you know sport um kind of see those a little differently, but the role I'm in currently, um, uh, I feel like it's quite effective by having strengths in both elements. Yeah, for sure. And and I think, I guess the next question kind of follow up on that, and you might have defined it some in there, but especially for the American population, whereas it's not a, it's, it's a newer role, whereas in England and Australia, it's been, I think, around longer and a little bit more developed. So how would you define sports science or, or what is what is that to you versus sometimes when people say sports science, it's a really umbrella term in the U S from my understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting uh, outlook as well, because uh, as you said, Australia and, and, and England is very different. And, and even 10 years ago, there was, there was roles who were just sports scientists um, per se and just strength coaches per se. And in the AFL, they had just strength of power coaches Um as opposed to, you know, what we call now performance coaches or, or whatever. Um, so in that aspect, I think Australia is a little bit more. Um, oh, gee, I don't know, I don't know the word, but but they have the ability to to kind of produce a lot of sports scientists and a lot of guys coming out of university and very very good um, data analysts. Um, and the US has kind of got a big history around the the strength world with Westside Barbell and you know, Louis Simmons and all these guys coming out of the US um, and then the NSCA being founded a, a long, long time ago obviously plays a massive emphasis on the strengths um, side of things. So they're probably, without sounding too, too uh, you know, judgmental, but they're probably a touch behind Australia uh, in terms of the sports science thing, but um, perhaps a little bit further ahead in, in relation to the, the strength development and, and power development that, um, has been, you know, um, educated over here past the task, uh, past the few uh, decades. Um, so yeah, yeah, it is a little different in the MLS and our roles here. Um, we're probably somewhere in between in this league, um, where there's there's clubs here that only have two practitioners and and they're both generalists uh, as a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach, and then there's other clubs with six. Um, Practitioners, and then you've got a strictly a, a, a fitness guy, strictly a strength guy, strictly a, a sports scientist. So, 
I guess to, to kind of loop back and answer your question, for me, the, the role of sports science uh, in terms of performance and, and sport is is really kind of a massive umbrella. Um, and I think it probably gets misinterpreted from a, a lot of different sides. But I think overall the theme is, is uh, as a practitioner, just to apply valid reliable uh, protocols and, and execute them as well as you can with a good theoretical knowledge, but also uh, some empirical evidence as you uh, progress yourself as a practitioner. Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, it's a good definition of it. And, and obviously, you know, as you said, you kind of have to be both sometimes. So someone might be more strength, strength conditioning and not as much sports science, but they're still going to have to use those general principles of identifying data, analyzing seeing if it's valid, et cetera. Do you have any general rules around those or some general ideas and thought processes and how you go about thinking I'm applying this for this good reason? Yeah. Uh, for me, my, my approach certainly is, is a, uh, is, is systematic in nature. So I, I strictly believe in a systematic approach where, you know, you begin by defining the objective, um, and, and again, going back to that big umbrella, if you're a strength coach, your objective is to, uh, let's say, for example, uh, develop submaximal strength, for, you know, anterior chain or whatever it is, right? But define the objective. Then from there, you, you choose appropriate methods, um, and then once you once you've chose a variety of appropriate methods, then it's it's um, the process of selecting the valid and, and reliable ones, as well as the materials and equipment needed, um, is is the next step. Um, then as a performance department, you, you assign the personnel roles and responsibilities um, to help achieve that original objective. Um, and then from there, obviously, you implement instructions um, within those personnel, um, start to value, evaluate the outcomes uh, of, of what you're looking at, what you've done, and then finally, you know, refining the process and, and going back again um, to, to define the objective. So it's all about kind of analysing uh, where you as a, as, as a club organization performance department can be better um, and then defining some objectives and then start tackling those systematically. Um, and, uh, yeah, that kind of goes back to what I said before because even as a strength coach, if you're, if you're um, having objectives to, let's say, increase a handful of players trapped by deadlift by, I don't know, 10% or something in six months, I'm just throwing numbers out there, right? you have to go through that systematic approach. And that to me is, is sports science. So even if you're a strength coach and you're going through that, that to me kind of uh, underlies what sports science is because you're going through the procedure of what needs to be done, how you can do it, what's valid, and then how do you measure and remeasure and make sure that you're on track to do the right thing. So um, you're applying your theoretical knowledge um, and then on top of that, you're, you're you know, analysing your own processes to, to achieve your objectives. Yeah, and I think oh, that's a good process and thought through that. With with this, I think a lot of times practicality and ability to yeah make it, I guess, whatever you're trying to do practical and si- as simple as possible to implement is, is always probably the biggest challenge sometimes. Uh, would you agree with that? And then if so, is there any ways that you try and cu- try to keep it as simple as possible so it is the most practical and works? Yeah, yeah, for me, yeah, of course. Okay. For me, my uh, uh, overall approach is just doing this simple well. Um, I try not to get too sexy with protocols or, or prescriptions. For me, 
Um, I, I look at it, you know, fundamental things uh, and try and do those as well as possible. So execution for me comes first. Um, so when it comes to even the strength stuff, um, I don't really try to reinvent the wheel at all. So even for our players, um, we we look at our prime moves or a squat pattern and a, and a deadlift pattern. Um, so basically a goblet squat and a trap bar deadlift is our prime movers. So, um, and, and that really doesn't change for me, to be honest, and, and it really hasn't since I've been in the league. Um, of course, there's the supplementary exercises that individualised um, and cater for, for, you know, injury risk and all that sort of stuff. But the prime movers fit the, fit the overall objective of, of, you know, increasing uh, strength adaptations, uh, neural adaptations, as well as, as musculoskeletal adaptations. So, um, yeah, for me, that's just keeping it simple. And the same thing goes for, for the monitoring as well, um, especially the monitoring, because I feel like some people, including myself, I, I used to just go down this rabbit hole of things you're looking at and, and you're starting to look for problems that don't necessarily exist. Um, so the simple stuff done well goes a long, long way, even as simple as a wellness questionnaire. If, you, if you're nailing the processes with that, um, you know, some of, the, some of the positive change that you can create from the players club and even how you train is, is like completely undervalued, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's probably the good way to put it and a good way to look at it as well as trying to get the most out of it and keeping it simple. So, I guess next thing we'll move into um, kind of is, is our hamstring topic that we're going to talk about. And I don't know if there's an exact way that you want to tackle this the best, but maybe first talking about some anything you're looking at to determine readiness or robustness of hamstrings initially through the season or, or when you're first screening, or is there anything you do to that? Uh, and then we can progress further into into some more topics upon that. Yeah, so for, for our cohort uh, in the MLS, obviously hamstrings are, are the number one uh, injured site when it comes to a majority of, of running-based team sports. But for us, uh, you know, examining football players, it's the number one injured site. So um, the preseason screening is, is absolutely integral. So we will do a um, Nordic hamstring test on the NOR board. Um, even if players haven't done it before, I'd still do it, knowing that they're going to be sore or whatever the next day. I'll try and do it as soon as possible and um, as raw as possible, like barely even any warm-up. And I know that's probably against a lot of, you know, practitioners' beliefs, but um, I'd, I'd try and get it as raw score as possible. Um, and then, obviously, I, I look at the integrity of the movements, um, look at the breaking points of... of you know, where the central control is lost um, and things like that. And then start to, that's kind of the first process. Um, the second process for me is once we start playing games is to develop a player profile for those individuals. So whether they're kind of high output guys or, or, or not. Um, and then, you know, you're kind of able to prescribe uh, exercises based off that um, and then monitor loads based off that as well to try and mitigate the, the risk of being injured. And there's a fine line, especially in pre-season when you're doing all that. And, and obviously we're currently in pre-season, so I'm talking, um, you know, exactly what we're doing now. Um, there's, there's kind of a lot that goes into that because you're trying to 
obviously accumulate a lot of high-speed running and things like that across all positions and players. Um, but some guys are probably a bit more willing or able to tolerate it as opposed to others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the overall process. And then from there throughout the season, like I, I do Nordics and stuff every week, um, but then prescribing exercises both from the hip and, and knee flexor um, just to try and tackle uh, everything in, in relation to, to uh, the strength adaptations and then the monitoring staff making sure guys are getting appropriate um, exposures above 90% of their max velocity. Again, I start to think this comes a bit more individual and, and related to you know, player profiles. Um, not to go down you know, a rabbit hole, but for example, if you have a defensive midfielder, they don't necessarily always get into the 90% max velocity. So it's kind of two schools of thought with that, um, protecting them as far as you know, hamstring injuries. Do they need more exposure during the week or or less than other players knowing that they may or may not be exposed to it on the weekend? So they're all questions kind of um, that I'm sure everyone in, in, in uh, my position would, would ask or our position would ask. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of the general... Uh, initial processes. And I guess with, so with Norboard, obviously there's, you know, are do you have numbers specific, specific to your soccer players you're looking at or previous research? Are you looking at comparatively to body weight and trying to get a percentage of that on there? Or how do you guys look about what's the number you're wanting to hit there? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think uh, looking, at, looking at Ryan Timmons' um, study from the A-League, he's kind of, Quadrant of Doom was was around ten and a half centimeters of bicep femur fascicle length and three hundred and twenty seven newtons of force uh, from memory. Um, so just based off that, like I try to have our performance markers around four hundred. Uh, not try to our performance markers four hundred. <laughs> so guys that fall under that, um, I'll put into uh, what we have at the club just a hamstring group. Um, and that hamstring group will have different supplementary and accessory exercises to their gym program throughout the year. Um, so and, until they get to 400, and even then they'll probably still have it. So within that hamstring group is um, guys that are under 400 for starters and then guys that have had a previous hamstring injury within the last two years. Um, they will be in that category and um, we'll try to continue to to make them as robust as possible in, in, in relation to that. But I think 400 is a decent number because it's, it's realistic and it's, I think you can, you can get there within a few good weeks of, of decent training. Um, and it, it's, it kind of, I find that, and this is just me speaking kind of anecdotally, a, a very good uh, protective um, range to be around. So I think our, our team average last year was 460 or something like that. And, um, by the time we got to April or something last year, in and around that period, um, we didn't have anyone under 400. So um, I think as a, as a department, we've done well there. And um, that's, yeah, that's kind of what we shoot for. And then with, uh, so with that number and with the Nordics, uh, or the, let's say they're under 400, sorry, or they had a previous hammy strain, um, is there any, so do you break it up in like hip, knee, combo exercises and target specific ones based upon certain things or is it you just try to include them all in there um yeah no i, I think it's important to 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 do everything um 
obviously like the, the boys ACU, Ryan Timmons and Matty Bourne, Jack Hickey and David Apar, all those guys uh, have done very, very thorough uh, research in looking at all that and looking at the hip versus the knee and then centric versus concentric and, and there's so much research now, it's it's kind of hard to ignore. Um, but I, for me, the overall message is, is to analyse where they're at, um, set some objectives where you want to be and then tackle everything um, that that is kind of, uh, you know, tier one evidence of, of mitigating the, the risk of injury. So for me, that is doing both um, knee flexor and hip extensor exercise in an eccentric manner. Um, however, I think it is it is incredibly vital that practitioners do have a um, exercise progression um, because what we've seen, especially in MLS, what we've seen is, you know, especially a club like ours where we recruit a lot of Central and South Americans um, who uh, probably have a, a very different view of strength training compared to myself and, and a lot of guys in our league. Um, we get guys in their mid-20s from, from South America that have never touched a dumbbell in their life basically. So um, for me to jump straight into a, a you know, Nordic uh, prescription would probably be a bit, bit um, – inappropriate uh and so i think it's it's important to create an exercise menu and progression um that that involve both a knee flex and hip extensor and i think it's very important for us as practitioners to to know exactly what those adaptations are um for example an, an rdl is not a replacement for a, a nordic exercise because one is a knee flexion the other one's a hip extensor so they can't do a Nordic for me. I wouldn't go to an RDL as a replacement. I would go to another knee flexor exercise that creates less strain and less torque on the isolated muscle group, uh, and that could be as simple as supine leg slides. Um, so guys lying on their back with with feet sliders on and and um, getting eccentric exposure that way to the knee flexor, as well as as well as doing those hip extensor exercises. So it is important to do both, and the same thing obviously applies to the hip extensor. Um, exercises to have a continuum. Um, obviously, you know, like a barbell RDL uh, or stiff leg RDL would be, you know, your kingpin, and then from there you work all the way down to something as simple as Ascalinus divers, um, which are unweighted and kind of just a range of motion exercise per se. So, um, yeah, that's how I would tackle it. Is is obviously do both to to kind of um, check all your boxes. Um, as an expression, but to check all your boxes and, and make sure you're, you're hitting it from every angle possible. Yeah, and then I guess one thing that I've always thought about that too, do you, do you have anything that you, that you use to screen or do you ever look at your hip dominant? Because obviously, you know, Nordics is like the main thing that's used, which is very knee dominant, and um, whereas the hip one never gets checked as much, and I feel like some people are really strong up there, but they're really poor and weak in, in your Nordic or the, more at the knee knee dominant one. So do you, do you have anything there? Do you think that's anything to look at or is it pretty much, again, too complicating it too much at that point? No, I think that's, I think that's pretty bang on. I think you, you do have to analyze that. But as far as like kind of interpreting the, the movement patterns and, and execution of the movement, it, it's, it's quite subjective. Um, for me, it is quite subjective. But, you know, the eye test is, is the ultimate. So... Similar to the integrity of a Nordic, you can see when guys 
breaking point of century control is is too soon. Um, there's now apps that you can measure the angle, but based on a bit of experience, you, you can get a general feel of when they break too soon, right? So the same thing for me with, with an RDL, um, let's say you're looking at a even just a bilateral regular RDL, right? Um, if their range of motion is poor or they, they lose integrity through their hips early or around the back or something too early, something as simple as that or, um, yeah, or perhaps they're feeling a stretch earlier than you anticipate. Just, a, I mean, a variety of things you can see uh, based on the integrity of the movement. That, that's, for me, the screen of the hip extensor exercises and, and you just kind of progress or regress um, based on the art of coaching, really. So, um, of course, yeah, I think that, that is important and... Uh, but but it is yeah, a bit more subjective as opposed to the normal board applying some you know, objective data points. Yep. And then you mentioned your kind of the player profiles you generate. Um, do you mean, do you mind briefly just talking about how or like how you would set that up? Or what are you looking at to profile them, or is it pretty much similar as as we spoke about uh, previously? Whether whether below four hundred had a previous injury and then going into that. Yeah, I think I think it's important to kind of amalgamate all data points. Um, so not just the, the localized strength, um, but also the physical outputs, um, age. It, pretty much everything I think should go into account because um, yeah, the the end game is you're preparing them to to be able to withstand the match demands. Um, so you you've got to be able to take their physical profile into account, right? So. Um, of, let's say, for example, you have a 31-year-old uh, centre midfielder with with a previous hamstring injury, and and his and his board is like 380. For me, that's that's alarming, but not super super alarming because he's a central midfielder and and probably not developing a lot of high speed running. And I'm talking about like a six position defensive midfielder, right? Um, Whereas on the contrary to that, if 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 you have a winger, high pace, very elastic, um, um, you know, great max speed and things like that, um, and has a three eighty on 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 the null board and maybe poor integrity in, in an RDL, and even if that individual doesn't have a hamstring injury, previous hamstring injury, that for me is probably more of a red flag than the first example because. Um, they're probably more likely to pull it in a game day scenario. Um, and that's, I think there's majority of that is based on, on my experience. But um, so I think it's important to kind of piece all those together. Um, so for me, when we uh, profile our players, we'll look at all those things, what, you know, what the position demands, uh, what their general average um, output is. Um, then within that, what, what are the, most demanding passages of play for those individuals. Um, so peak intensity is what are they exposed to? Uh, yeah, relative strength, age, hamstring injury history, um, and, and all that sort of stuff. Even just relative strength plays a role there too. Like if this is a guy, you know, trap by deadlifting 135 weekly, you know, that's that's a bit of a red flag as well. Do you know what I mean? So um, taking all that into account is, is, a, is a good player profile. And then, um, obviously, we do a, a variety of tests pre-season. So in the last couple of years, we've actually introduced a repeat sprintability test um, that our department kind of uh, developed based on some previous research from the 90s. So 
Um, we do a repeat sprint and we're able to profile uh, based on those results, whether they're elastic, aerobic or high output guys. Um, and we're able to get an idea if they're able to repeat max effort sprints as well as, um, you know, how, uh, you know, how great their max speed actually is. Um, so that plays a big role in our hamstring reduction um, uh, protocols because to, to that point earlier, if there's a winger, generally in the repeat sprint ability test, they'll have a massive, massive output, but a quite a large sprint decrement and fatigue index as well, um, just because they're super lactic. So um, that obviously play, yeah, plays a role in, in the strength prescriptions. Yeah, okay. And then... I guess when so we're looking you, you profile the player you determine these metrics are down as you talked about before whatever that is um, especially like athletes that are, have to try and train as much as possible and they might not be held out of complete training just because they have an asymmetry of some sorts or they have you know it's down from normal uh, so obviously you have volume and intensity to try and get them back up do you do do you try to are you have a route of microdosing at a lower or a lower intensity over longer period of time to try and keep them in and not overload them or do you like to overload them on days and then give them some and then they have a rest day etc or how, how do you approach on trying to increase that strength is there anything that you found works best um yeah that's that's a that's a brilliant question because i think it's obviously easy answer is it depends uh, yep. but, but that is the answer so uh it does depend because i think when it comes to training outputs um, I'm a firm believer on the high, high, low approach, um, to have acquisition days, um, and then deload or, or taper days, um, as opposed to being monotonous outside. Um, however, when it comes to the strength stuff, I, I am a big fan of microdosing and, um, and to take some of those examples, I mean, we can look specifically in the hammies again. So, um, I believe it was Joel Preslin kind of did a, did a good research and, um, so did Lacombe. There was another one that um, looked at the, the minimal effective dosage to to maintain bicep and fascicle length, and it was kind of around eight reps, right? So presuming they've had a um, uh, a chronic exposure to eccentric loading, right? So you know any any off season program or, or pre season program. Um, so if that's eight reps, I don't think it's necessarily always realistic just to do two by four or three by three or something to get eight reps in one session. Um, because especially lately where you have congested schedules and things like that, or international windows and all, all the kind of non-modifiables that we face as practitioners, right? So um, when it comes to things like that and you want to get the minimal effective dose um, throughout the week, uh, microdosing is, is um, the, the bang on prescription for me. So it could be as simple as maybe, maybe players are only doing one set of three Nordics on one day. And then a couple of days later, they're doing um, two sets of four slides as well. And then they get, they get, you know, kind of higher intensity exercises being exposed to, and then also microdosing some of the regression uh, exercises just to get uh, eccentric overload there. Um, but yeah. I hope that answers your question. I'm, I'm trying to stick with a the hammy theme. there. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's yeah. Cause we just have some guys similar circumstances. We're trying to get them up, what up, um, increase the Nordic score, and trying to figure out best way to do it with keeping them training, but not, you know, overloading them and 
trying to not be too sore. And I guess that's going to kind of lead to the next question I was going to ask. You know, obviously nowadays it's always, and Steve Hooper had on a couple episodes ago, he, um, he's, he's brought, we kind of had a little chat about this too, and he brought this up of, uh, obviously Nordics are always usually prescribed now or done or any hamstring work off after field session or non on a day that's not heavy sprint. So is, do you have any opinion on what if you were to do them beforehand and build them up and microdose and get used to that? versus always doing it afterwards or any benefit, especially with schedules and having to change in, you know, weights before some days. And then some days you, you know, you have to switch up your schedule and then having the ability and flexibility to be able to go, Oh, we built this up. I'm not too worried about doing it beforehand. Do you have any you know, general thoughts on that? And obviously there's probably better rules, but again, in, in the reality of what we work in, sometimes it's not going to be perfect all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question, man. I think, yeah, there's, I've, I've tried a variety of approaches and, and I think, yeah, to Nordic and, and not to Nordic is, is an easy question, but I think when to Nordic is or, or when to expose them to just, you know, the gym program, for example, is, is a, is a very important question because um, I've tried both. I've tried doing, you know, the strength program before training and after, after training. And then even within that weekly cycle, um, let's, let's say, for example, you have two acquisition days one is a small-sided game day, uh, so intensive in nature, where from a musculoskeletal standpoint, you're probably overloading the adductors, quads, uh, knees. Um, whereas in extensive nature, where they're exposed to a bit more high-speed running and closer to their peak intensity, if not above their match demands for peak intensity, you're certainly overloading the hamstring group. So a question that we always ask as practitioners is, do you do gym do you do a posterior chain gym day on the extensive day and completely overload the hammies on that day or do you do it on a, on a different day? Um, for me, I've tried both and, and it's kind of six, one, half a dozen the other and it's certainly dependent on your cohort and your, and your environment. So let's, uh, you know, I'll build that an example for you. So say say we're doing a four-day build-up Tuesday, small-sided game, so you're overloading the, the quads and adductors. Um, then you, you wait a few hours, you come in, do gym, and you do posterior chain, and you do your Nordics, your deadlifts, and, and those isolated exercises, knowing that they're going to come in on Wednesday morning with uh, some DOMs in the in the posterior chain, but that's the extensive overload day where they're going to be exposed to high-speed running. So it's kind of two schools of thought, I, I suppose, you, depending on, on your cohort, obviously, but you're either A, building robustness because now they're doing it under fatigue, or B, you're exposing them to a greater risk of injury, uh, or, or both, right? So uh, I, I've done both ways, but, um, yeah, so it, I think it's dependent on the time of year, certainly dependent as well. Um, I like the idea of, of prioritising the strength. So that example, prioritising the strength in the pre-season, so um, doing it on the, on the day before the extensive day, um, and then letting them be exposed to high-speed running and, and creating a, a positive adaptation and increasing robustness for season. Um, once we're in season, there's probably a bit more bit more lenience. Um, and, and the other big question is the timing is, is when do you want to do the gym program too? Because like you said, in our environment, sometimes it's hard, right? So, um, and, and especially in the nature we're in, that guys want to come in straight off the field and go straight to the gym. But 
as strength coaches, you know if they're coming in pre-fatigue that, that you're not going to get the best bang for your buck from your, from your strength program, especially if you're trying to hit some prime movers and create neural adaptations. So uh, in the pre-season, like we're just currently going through now, we try to uh, we try to have our strength training um, session at least three hours after the, the field session is done, allowing them to meet with a dietitian, you know, get some snacks, get whatever they need, um, you know, rehydrate, of course, and things like that. So then when they come in the gym, it's like we, we do a rewarmer and we actually, you know, tackle the weights um, and, and execute, going back to your first question, executing um, and doing the simple really, really well as opposed to coming in and um, pre-fatigue state and, yeah, not getting your bank for your buck. So um, that's my long-winded answer to that. But, yeah, there, there's a lot of ways to do it. So I think... To answer that, I, I try and do it different in the preseason as I would to in season. Um, in season, I, there's there's a lot more degrees of freedom and a lot more leniency um, with timing and structure, and even the exercise selection. Um, I go back and forth to players and give you know throw them a bone here and there. But in preseason, um, with the strength training stuff being a being a you know primary objective and you know absolutely integral to to the overall. Uh, program, um, there's not much leeway with that. I don't think if you can control it, right? <laughs> if, if you can control yeah. it, so yeah, <clears throat> yeah. No, I think that yeah, as as you said, it's always an independent answer. But I guess that gives a good um, rationale for both both trains of thought. I think so. Um, one thing that I want to I want to bring it back to and touch on that um, I forgot to mention, and, and when we're talking about obviously hip dominant knee dominant combo exercises and, and training to try and strengthen the hamstrings in general. Um, what, what about obviously your high velocity type movements? So your tantrums, uh, straight leg, bent knee, as well as sprinting to try and build hamstring strength as well. How, how do you integrate that in there? Is, do you have anything that, um, general frames or rules that you go by when, when trying to implement those in like when and how much and along those lines? Yeah. Um, so you go to the first point, the band of tantrums, I, I, I like. I think it's a it's a good exercise. I I with this. I don't think it falls in the primary or supplementary movements uh, for the gym program. I think it's 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 certainly on on my exercise menu in the return of play setting, um, and it's more so a pain tolerance thing as as far as building robustness. Um, I think the robustness comes from the heavy lifting and the hip and and sorry the fast sprinting. Um, so I think, yeah, the band of tantrum stance that one, I think is a good return of play exercise as, as kind of just making sure that they can do it uh, before sprinting. But um, I don't really prescribe those in a, in a team setting to healthy guys. I'd rather them lift heavy and be exposed to greater centric loads. Um, and then the sprint exposures, that's, I think that's a delicate one. And um, for how we approach it, we don't, like if we can again control it we don't like to have them exposed to 90 percent max velocity in the first week if we can control it so of pre-season uh rather so uh in the first week of pre-season um we try and work with the coaches to to have some good intensive bias days but not you know not training too much above the uh, peak intensity for the for the acceleration uh, markers, um, and and try to yeah limit dimensions so players aren't being exposed to it. But 
if, you know, in the perfect world, you know, um, we try and expose players incrementally to max velocity. So, you know, 75 to 85% the first week, 85 to 95 in the second week. And then by week three, everyone, or even week two, if, if you have a good cohort and you can push the envelope, um, by week three, we really try and push and and get some new max speeds and get get a you know um, a lot of exposures there. Um, and in a six week preseason, we'll generally do that repeat sprintability test that I mentioned in week three. So that's when you know in a four minute span, guys will be exposed to uh, at least three exposures over ninety percent of their max velocity. So, uh, but we do have to build to that. And then once we get there, then it's about monitoring those exposures, um, how often you're doing things like that to. Uh, obviously, yeah, increase the resilience of of the hamstring muscle group. Yeah, okay, and and then I guess when so throughout the season, obviously you're going to be you know doing sprints, doing all these exercises to to keep them strong and so on, and plan around everything that's going on. Is there any any different ways you monitor in season on how the hammies are going if they're over fatigued, if something's happening, um, and then ways you adjust accordingly to help get that number back up, strength back up? Um, yeah, it probably goes back to just doing a simple well. I think like um, being diligent about analyzing the, the data that, that we're collecting and it and it really can be as simple as wellness scores and, and high-speed running and, and sprint um, uh, volumes. So let's say, for example, like I'm looking at wellness every day and guys reports – fatigue across the posterior chain um, and it, let's say it's you know 10 out of 20 players whatever it is reporting fatigue um, isolated in the posterior chain um, you know as a practitioner you either see that coming or you don't and I think if you don't see it coming it's probably a bit, a bit more alarming but um, you know even to speak where we're at now um, this past week where we had three preseason games in a, in a 10 day span or whatever it was like of course, by game three, even the, the day before the game, guys are reporting um, isolated uh, fatigue in the hamstrings. Um, but it's not a concern, you know. You're like, okay, now's the time to build robustness. And um, again, like what I mentioned earlier, you'd, you'd rather them do that on fatigue and, and create resilience as opposed to, you know, pulling them out of that and saying, oh, no, they can't play because they're, they're fatigued or whatever. So um, a little different in season. Um you know, obviously doing a simple well, looking at high-speed running and anticipating some things um, as opposed to, you know, getting blindsided. So, for example, we have a big acquisition day using that same example where we do posterior chain on Tuesday and then a high-speed running on Wednesday. Um, we know they're going to be sore in a posterior chain Thursday. Uh, depending on what time of year, we try to employ some recovery modalities and strategies to, to minimise that. But... Um, if guys are still reporting great levels of fatigue on the Friday or Saturday going into a game, um, we've probably overshot that. So um, as far as the, the screening and monitoring that, I think it's as simple as that. Just looking at um, the basics as far as wellness and, and GPS data. And obviously, you know, we would have done Nordics in the week. So if, if guys' scores have dropped well below their baseline, or the integrity looks poor compared to their baseline, um, uh, you know, reps. Um, kind of those are the main ones that go into account, I think. And then if you're doing those, even those three things very, very well, um, 
you, you probably you're in, you're in good nick to to minimise the, the risk of hamstring injuries. Yeah. Okay. And, and to follow that up, and I, this is definitely probably going to be another it depends question. But so if you have, let's say, with um, you know, especially talking about loading posterior chain one day and then going up into sprinting, I see a lot of people would be, you know, nervous about it or or whatever. But if you know, as you mentioned, trying to build robustness. Uh, what what do you determine, or is there anything you're looking at to go? Okay, this guy maybe is a little bit, you know, too much, and we might want to sit him out today, or or decrease his load because he's a little bit over the edge of what I'd want for soreness. Like, do you have general things you look at because you know they're going to be coming in sore, or if so, or if in a setting where you when you don't, you know, load them beforehand, maybe that's just the fact that they are sore and you'd sit him out because of that. But you know, what what are your criteria of? Oh, we should maybe pull back from a high speed running. You know, gym works not. I mean, you could overload him more on it. You're probably not going to injure him in the gym as much as like letting him go out and play on the field and, and go high speed and hurt themselves. But is there anything you're looking at there that goes, oh, yeah, maybe we should pull this guy back? Um, yeah, a, a few scenarios come to mind. Um, I'll just give you even the most recent one that, that we had to deal with last week. So as I said, we, we had three games in, in a span of 10 days. Um and we had our full squad except for our international uh, players that were off with with the different cups. Um, so one of our players just returned from international duty playing midweek. Um, so even just looking like heuristically, because we didn't have data on, on his flight and things like that, but the, but the bloke took a 15-hour flight, um, landed in the middle of the night, things like that. That's a scenario right there where we say, okay, now that's probably crossed the line of building robustness um, and, and flirting with the line of injury. Um, and there was no, there's no data points other than him coming in saying, hey, I landed at one o'clock. By the time I got to the hotel, it was 2 a.m. Uh, and the coaches have put him in the session at 10 a.m. So you think, okay, that's the time where you're like, all right, let's just, let's reel it in. Um, so there is, there is a fine line there. Again, it comes down to making heuristic decisions as a department and kind of their article. Coaching is, is the main things that come into play. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of kind of yeah one scenario. Um, uh, an- another one. Yeah, that's, it's kind of tough. In seasons, a little different, uh, I suppose. Yeah, if 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 guys are sore on Friday, like I said, you've probably done something wrong. I think. In our environment, there's there's a lot of things you can and can't control. I think the, the one thing that comes to mind that, that certainly you can control is the gym prescriptions. Um, you can do as much as you can to to recommend variables and, and dimensions and all that sort of stuff when it comes to training drills. But um, all it takes for a fullback or a winger is a couple of balls over the top um, in, in something as simple as doing patterns, you know, uh, patterns to goal and then, all of a sudden they've got three exposures above 90% of their max velocity. And and now you're watching that as a practitioner and, you, and you're thinking, geez, he might be a touch sore tomorrow based on his high-speed running exposures and sprint exposures. Um, and if that's a day where you have gym, uh, you know, that's one thing you can control. So uh, for, for us, kind of, kind of where we sit is I'm probably first to reel in some of that gym work uh, within within reason um, to minimise that and get ahead of that as opposed to just sticking with it and then to that example earlier, they're sore on Friday and then you say, oh, it must be the field session, but you're in complete control of maybe minimising the overall load um, in terms of field and gym um, just by 
maybe dropping a few sets here and there from the gym, but but keeping the intensity high. So just a basic kind of deload principle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah that makes that makes sense there, and I guess building off that and then next question here we have if we're talking if we're bringing it back to talking about monitoring in the Nord border and all that other thing another thing I forgot to mention there too is is obviously we're getting that max strength asymmetry wise are you looking at anything asymmetry wise and start with there and then I'll and then I'll um then I'll follow up with the next one I guess yeah <laughs> um geez, I, I probably Maybe I maybe I challenge the status quo in terms of asymmetry, but for me, asymmetries fall relatively low on on, on the um, on the injury risk. Uh, I know there's a couple of researchers that suggest it's not as important, and there's some that suggest it's incredibly important. I think I think I would take absolute strength numbers over asymmetries first. Um, to take that same example, let's say some of the research out there says anything above 15% uh, asymmetry from um, between limbs uh, is, is a risk of injury, right? So um, going back to the same numbers of newtons of force we're using on the on the, on the the Nord board, if we have a, a pretty strong player um, that's getting like 480 or 500 something newtons of force on, on the Nord board, um, let's say it's 480 on one leg and then like 420 on the other leg and that's percentage-wise probably looks like it's going to be red flagged or yellow flag or whatever. Uh, for me, that's not as concerning as if compared to a player that had both limbs under like 360-ish. You know what I mean? So I think I'd rate absolute strength over asymmetries. Um because asymmetries can kind of be developed by a variety of things, um, even just the way, you know, certain drills and training and, and stuff is done. Um, and I think realistically you probably anticipate athletes at this level, uh, especially in this sport, to have an asymmetry within within reason. Um, yeah, so I, I, it's, it's not that I ignore asymmetries yep. but i don't think they play as big as a role as as absolute strength and sometimes they don't really alarm me like based on my experience i haven't really seen a player have an asymmetry that's strong in both legs and be injured um and you know being exposed to an injury within a few weeks of that um knock on wood geez knock on wood that doesn't happen to me now but um yeah yeah, and I guess so. Then this will tie back in, obviously, to the, the previous point, not just going crazy randomly on that. But so, obviously, then you're monitoring on when to sit out and so on. Are you ever testing Nord or Nord scores like post session or post, like when they're fatigued to see if, if there's a major drop off or see if one has a major asymmetry or anything along those lines? I mean, it might be more um, applicable and maybe return to performance or your rehab type guys to test afterwards. Is that something that you ever look at or, or not really? Um, not really. Like it, it has, it has, you know, come across my mind in, in previous scenarios, more so in the return of play setting. Um, it certainly has. Uh, if anything, I've probably gone the other way where I've done a Nordic prior to training. Uh, but to use it after as a kind of a fatigue index would be, I don't know if I can comment too much cause I haven't done it. Um, I haven't done it, but, uh, I'd like to give it a crack, but it, it's kind of, 
I'd have to have a, a really good justified reason to why. I, I think there's other uh, neuromuscular fatigue markers you can use prior to that. Um, previously, I've used it, you know, a groin squeeze with a handheld dynamometer to look at neuromuscular fatigue post-session and things like that. Um, and, and similar to the norboard, you know, you're isolating one muscle group, so there's a little bit of noise in the data. Um, depending on, on, on the training session itself. Um, but, yeah, no, I haven't done that. I'd, I'd be keen to try, but it would have to be under, you know, probably a probably a specific circumstance for me to, to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, because we just, we just had a similar – we had just had to fit it in the other day and one of them popped up a little bit off. And, yeah, I always thought about that and he's kind of that late-stage return to play as well. So, but anyways um, – I know we've uh, we've already talked fifty one minutes here, and we have. I would love to chat a little bit about the um, return and performance side as well. As um, so, obviously, as you mentioned, like Jack Hickey and all those guys did a lot of research on um, being able, to, like, pain of a four out of ten is what I think they recommended, or 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 below is okay for hammy rehab. And a lot of people get really nervous when they do that. Not that it came back sooner, but they had um, better bicep uh, from. More faster length, I'm pretty sure was the the, the outcome measure, or it was more strength. Anyways, um, so you know, I guess how how do you approach that with athletes with you know four out of ten or whatever? Some discomfort's okay. How much do you push through? And is there any I guess main things or main principles you're looking at in the return to performance side um, with these with the hammy injuries? Yeah, no, that's that's a great one. I think this discussion needs to be had more frequently in terms of the pain threshold because. Um, like obviously Jack's research is is really, really good and, and super, super beneficial for, for practitioners. Um, I think as practitioners, you kind of need to go that one step further um, and and know your players' personality and their traits um, to be able to to monitor and um, apply those, apply, you know, prescriptions within those thresholds uh, effectively. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think everyone's because it's so subjective everyone's pain threshold is different right but um and, and what they can tolerate is is different as well so to simply say i mean because we do it obviously we we employ a yeah a pain threshold thing in the return of play and and from jack's research it's it's four or below uh but four or below is so individualized of how they do it we use the same chart that he used in his in his research and it's it's well and good but um yeah, knowing the athlete and, and, yeah, just their personality, you can take it kind of one step further and, and be a bit more effective with it. And I'll provide some examples. So we had a player last year um, that was in a return of play setting and and I was with him in doing a passing activity of a, a football drill and I said, okay, just let me know if there's any discomfort here as we're doing it and, let's say we had 10 passes or whatever it was after rep three, he stopped and looked at me and goes, this is a three out of 10. This is, this is a three out of 10. Okay. I said, okay. And he would kind of, kind of stop and, and really like he almost overthought about it. So uh, in that situation, it probably wasn't as effective because now I've planted it in his head that he has to think about it. Um, so there's probably a better way to go about that. And on the contrary to that, like we had another player recently um, that was in a return play setting for a, for a foot, a foot ankle uh, injury. And we would, I was doing the same thing with him, long balls at 
25, 30 yards. Um, and as I was lashing at men, we got, I said to him, you know, let me know if there's any discomfort as we go through. He banged out a, a set of 10, didn't hesitate, didn't wince, didn't look like any sort of compensation going on and, and it looked like it was well executed. And I said, and I had to ask, how was that? And he goes, oh, that was a five out of 10. And I thought, well, there's, 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 you know, certain individuals or one guy that would literally stop mid, mid, you know, session and say that, that, and, and want to report it and make sure that's heard. And the other guy was like, oh, that was a five, but that five is, is tolerable. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a, a couple of different schools of thought, like because that's a five, but he was able to do it without any sort of hesitation or, or things like that. Do you regress that exercise to keep it at four or below or do you continue? Um, uh, you can probably guess what I did. I just I cracked on with it and continued um, because there was no hesitation from the, from the athlete. So whereas the other one, um, whilst we did continue, we had to almost re-educate the pain threshold and almost re-coach the exercise to say, get through it then. Um, and also the, the, the medical personnel have to play a large role in, in doing this because uh, we need to know, as practitioners doing those exercises, we need to know the limitations of the player. So if the medical personnel is with me, which most of the time they are, well, all the time now, um, they're going to tell me this is a this is a pain tolerance thing, and as long as you can tolerate, you can proceed as as prescribed. Um, or, or or the other flip side to that is the the medical personnel says, look, if he if he tolerates pain and, and true discomfort, the injury could get worse, and that's obviously where you would probably be on a bit more conservative side because you don't want to make him worse. But if it is a if it is a pain tolerance thing and progresses exercise by the medical personnel and the doctors, then that second example of a guy giving a five, I'm going to crack on every time and, and, and push that envelope to try and get him back as soon as possible. And I think, I think using that pain threshold is certainly advantageous to creating accelerated return of play program. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's a good, I guess, discussion on more of uh, the human interaction of it in figuring out how to build like, the relationships and interpreting how they're going and that's you know something with the research that it's it shows yeah we can push through pain but you know what is what is it and that's a that's a good t- top touching point there um i guess like last question here i don't like i don't know if there's a great way to answer this one i'm shoving all of it in a couple minutes of <clears throat> the return to performance side but it's, it's like i said is do you have a, do you have any main markers you're looking at or any main things main principles going about that return to play return to performance um with your hammy injuries end stage or, or wh- wherever your main involvement is along that path uh yeah so um similar to to the gym program stuff as well is um just creating a progression regression menu for for not only velocities and speeds and accelerations, decelerations as well, um, but also the, the exercise program. So um, combining it, you know, stages of an exercise program is the same with the, with the field stuff. So uh, what we've kind of built here within our department is um, kind of, let's start with the field progression. So I, I have three stages, a stage uh, one, two, and three with the field progressions, both for intensive and extensive in nature. So, uh, if you need, once a once a if a hamstring injury occurs, uh, I'll say if because I'm trying to I'm trying to be optimistic this year. But uh, if a hamstring injury occurs, um, once you get once you get an idea of imaging and 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 um, 
if you're going to use imaging, that's another kind of controversial topic, but, uh, you know, some information provided by the medical personnel and, and you get an idea of a ballpark of when they can return, you kind of work from that date backwards. And then for us, we'll plug and play those stage one, two, three intensive and extensive markers uh, across a variety of days. Um, I generally always start rule of thumb with a hybrid day where you introduce some change of direction, some intensity, uh, sorry, intensive bias activities. Um, look at kind of instantaneous acceleration from a dead stop uh, and then start to f- flirt with some low level uh, velocities. And then you get an idea of what they can tolerate, what they cannot tolerate. So let's say for a, let's, let's say we just have a bicep fem grade one um, and they, and we're working within a pain threshold and we have them stride. I always have just have them stride self-reported pace because uh, then you get a really good idea and say they clip in the seventies, uh, but they report a three out of 10 pain and, and, a, you know, let's just say hypothetically it doesn't look great. Uh, but then you do a bunch of really dense exercises where they're stopping, starting, change direction. And, and it's, you know, one out of 10 pain, pain free basically. And, um, they can get through the intensive markers and they can accelerate from a dead stop with no pain and things like that. Um, I'm more likely to quickly proceed through those stages and then take your time through the other ones that, that within working with that pain threshold uh, and, and vice versa, even if it's a quad or whatever. Sometimes with an adductor injury, they can clip 90% on day two or something of being outside, but they can't change the direction. They you know can't have... Uh, tolerable pain in, in different change of direction patterns. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to, to kind of do a, a really big screening on day one. Not big screening, but, uh, you know, a hybrid session involving a variety of football drills and movement patterns. Uh, and then, you know, working within the game demands and, and most demanding passages of play within the game uh, and starting to uh, prescribe some drills and, and um, GPS markers based on those as well as, kind of physiological uh, movement patterns. Yeah, and obviously, like, probably a lot of the stuff we touched on previously with with how you're looking at trying to hit, you know, max strength on those, et cetera, are going to all be things that are going to be applicable to the RT, the return to performance and rehab guys as well. Um, I guess just one more, I promise. Um, with the uh, change of direction, obviously, if you're going straight line, you can quantify that a lot easier if you have GPS or the percentage of what they're going at or the speed they are. Change of direction-wise, do you have any... Is it the drill that makes it more challenging or is it, you know, roughly same thing, go about 70 per, your 70% or your 60% to try to get them to move through a drill at X amount of intensity? Um, yeah, I think, I think I'd look at like two things. I think the first one, like I would do um, some activity without the ball to begin with where it involves a variety of changes of direction. So across all planes, like, side shuffling, crossovers, you know, full 180-degree um, turns, uh, pivoting, and then when you introduce a ball, now you're pivoting, opening your hips, receiving it. So a variety of, you know, kind of, I guess, two-dimensional movement patterns. Um, and there's no GPS markers really for that, but just identifying if there is any discomfort in any of those planes of motion, uh, then introducing ball stuff like that, like pivoting, receiving, playing out of, playing out of different positions across the body, you know, um, things like that. And then when you start to uh, increase intensity of some of those technical drills and, and change the direction drills, uh, I'll look at acceleration density uh, from the GPS marker 
um, as a GPS marker. So uh, what I've done in, in, in some of my research, there's uh, by extracting the acceleration, uh, raw acceleration um, from GPS and, and looking at the most demanding passages or peak intensities, what you want to call it, uh, and then looking at those across different um, uh, time intervals. Um, so then, yeah, basically what you do with that, you can quantify that. And, and I think um, having them been exposed to greater uh, peak intensities for speed as well as acceleration uh, are really good exit criteria uh, for return to play setting. And obviously depending on the injury, but I would, I would suggest that they should be exposed to both. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate um, you, you staying on for a little bit extra bit to make sure we get get through that but if you just want to share um, where people can uh, follow you or anything else you've shared i can put all those i'm um, in the show notes and and then we can wrap it up there yeah no problem uh so i'm on social media uh it's just my last name underscore zero five so call the underscore zero five and that's the same on twitter instagram whatever so yeah perfect all right thanks again really appreciate it cheers mate <laughs> Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoy the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning content and injury rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on my website, www.patrick-wood.com. All this information can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.